According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again. Actually, we're going to be in chapter 32 here in a moment, but I want to tie together some, some loose ends from chapter 31. So Deuteronomy 31 and verse 9, and then we will uh, wrap that up and have plenty of time left over for, uh, I've got to cover chapter 32, as well as Psalm 90. For day 82, this class is day 82 in the Through the Bible Calendar, the Song of Moses, and the material we cover includes uh, basically uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 and uh, Psalm 90. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, once again we come before You, thankful for Your grace and truth, rejoicing in the abundant blessings that You supply upon us. Thank You, Father, for this opportunity now. Set aside the distractions. Keep us awake. Keep us alert. We thank You, Father, and we praise You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, um, we left off as we were running out of time last hour. I want to pick up, the statement is made in Deuteronomy 31 and verse 9, and I, I provided some notes in the notebook um, that, that actually weren't a part of the original notebook, it's part of the new notes. Uh, when it says in Deuteronomy 31, 9, so Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord into all the elders of Israel. So we have testimony to Moses' role as an author and the author of the revealed canon, the author of the text of the Word of God, and we accept it on that basis. Jesus accepted it on that basis. Uh, Jesus said that Moses was the author of the law, and we have no, no arguments there. But one thing I think we need to stop and consider is that canonicity and inspiration, these doctrines that we study, are more than just the original author and the original autographs that they compose. And that's what we want to, I'm going to touch on for just a few minutes here at the beginning of this hour, and then we'll move on. So Moses is the author of, we say, the Pentateuch. The first five books are the books of Moses, the law of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Also Psalm 90 is, is listed as Moses in the prescript of Psalm 90. There are Jewish legends that would also append Psalm 91 as well. Uh, attaching Psalm 91 to the end of Psalm 90, considering them one psalm, and uh, then giving Moses authorship of both. Um, I'm not ready to adopt that view yet, but that was the, the Jewish tradition. Also the book of Job is largely thought of as being Moses' authorship, if in fact it was translated from an earlier source, then Moses is the one who under the inspiration of Scripture uh, put that into its Hebrew canonical form. But also keep in mind, these written works as inspired scripture endure to this, to this day in their current forms. And that's where we have to study the concept of preservation, which I think gets abused in a lot of cases. So we're clear on inspiration. The Holy Spirit empowered these authors and came upon them and, and empowered them and led them and directed them to write. Now it didn't turn them into zombies and it didn't... Uh, get, turn them into automatons whereby he dictated words and they just robotically wrote it down. That's not how inspiration works. Because with each author we see in the scripture they maintain their personalities, they maintain their writing styles, their quirks. Uh, everything that goes into human originality is, is readily apparent in, in the scriptures as you read them. Um, so we understand the autographs are the original manuscripts inspired by the Holy Spirit by, that are kind of a combination of God and man, like the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ, undiminished deity, true humanity, united together in one person forever. That's our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the God-man. And something analogous to that happens when God inspires Scripture, because the Holy Spirit comes upon an inspired writer, and moved by the Spirit of God, he is writing the very words of God. All Scripture is God-breathed and inspired. So it, we, we have a definition of inspiration that has to cover for that. Beyond that, we do recognize that there is a sanctified editing process that follows the original autographs for centuries after these co-authors are long dead. Okay, Moses is long dead 
when Joshua composes the ending to, to Deuteronomy and describes Moses' death and the transition of power and the things that followed Moses' death. I believe they were attached to the end of the book of Deuteronomy by Joshua after Moses died. There is other editing and compiling and arranging that takes place. You know, the 150 Psalms in our Bible were not put there in that order by David. They were organized later. Likewise with the Proverbs. There were Proverbs added to the Proverb collection that existed in Solomon's lifetime. So there's a lot more that needs to be done to understand the the written works as inspired scripture that endure to this day in their current forms. That the current forms we have of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are the forms that God preserved and delivered once and for all to the saints. And so we do have claims like all scripture is is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And that is absolutely true of all scripture. But that's all scripture in the forms that God supervises, in the forms that come to us as they are copied, as they are recopied, as they are organized, as they are published. You know, the idea of taking 66 books and putting them in a bound volume and putting them in a, in a collection like this of Old Testament and New Testament alike, Moses didn't have that. This isn't the form that they had when the autographs were written. Okay? But this is the form that he has preserved, and it still qualifies as all Scripture. Even better, this is an English translation of the Hebrew, the Aramaic, and the Greek autographs as they are preserved for us in in church history. So, um, inspired scripture enduring to this day in their current forms. Reconstructed autographs of the Hebrew, Aramaic, and Koine Greek God-breathed scripture. So this is an English translation of reconstructed autographs. We don't have a single autograph. You name 66 books of the Bible, or even technically more than that if you want to break out the Psalms into their five books of Psalms and their 150 different individual Psalms. Uh, but be that as it may, um, all of the books of the Bible, we'll just call them the 66, these are not, we don't have the autographs. We don't have an original manuscript of Genesis, an original manuscript of Exodus. We don't have an original manuscript of anything of the 66 books. And I think that's great. God was so faithful to, to um, scatter those autographs and to leave us as the custodians of God's Word. So, and this shouldn't be a surprise to us because we've encountered things like this before. Back in Exodus 24, we had a thing called the Book of the Covenant. And Moses took the Book of the Covenant and he read it in the hearing of all the people and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. Well, that was back at Mount Sinai. That was back 40 years before Moses finished Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right, This was at Mount Sinai. What was that Book of the Covenant? See, if it was not... Uh, you know, the Torah that we have today in the form that it was given at that time. So technically, the Book of the Covenant no longer exists in that precise form, but most likely consisted of the collection of laws found in Exodus 20 through 23. That portion there that they were given at Sinai when they vowed, yes, we'll do that. And he put them under the oath and he sprinkled them with the blood of the covenant. Likewise, the book of the law of Moses that we're looking at here in Deuteronomy 31, verse 9. He wrote this law and gave it to the priests, called the book of the law of Moses. Further down in the chapter, where it's called in verses 24 through 26, it came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, saying, take this book of the law and place it beside the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may remain there as a witness against you. This is called the book of the law of Moses. It no longer exists in that precise form, but most likely consisted of the legal portions of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Entrusted to the Levitical priesthood, This is the book which was to be read from each Feast of Tabernacles every year on the Feast of Tabernacles. This is what they would read from. Also, we ask ourselves, the king was supposed to write out his own copy of the law. Well, which version of that was he to write out? The Pentateuch as we have it today? Not likely. But the book of the law of Moses that existed in that day. 
Likewise, what was the book that was lost, that was found in the days of Josiah? The book which Hilkiah found during the reign of Josiah. What was that lost text that was found and restored and became part of their worship again? It was this book here of Moses that's spoken of here in this chapter. So what I'm trying to expose you to in the process of all this is the concept of canonicity and inspiration and preservation that has a lot more involvement besides the spirit-filled co-authors. It also includes the spirit-filled organizers, the spirit-filled compilers, the spirit-filled editors, the spirit-filled organizers. Did I say that already? So when uh, Ezra the scribe, when he takes these things and he puts them in the form that would be considered the canonical form, that's the form that can be replicated. That's the form that can be distributed. These are the scrolls that were copied and sent to the various synagogues around the Jewish world and, uh, and things of that nature. The canonical form. And that was huge for Israel because we're talking over 1,500 years of time from Moses to Christ. And so that's a lot of generations. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of changes. The, the Psalms had to be put in that order. They had to be collected together. The Proverbs of Solomon, likewise, in the various editions that they had. I just want us to be aware of this because I think sometimes um, we have poor definitions of canonicity, poor definitions of inspiration uh, that don't count or don't consider the adjustments to the text that took place. And as they were copied, for example, some of the place names were updated with more recent spellings or more recent terms. The city of Ramses, for example, wasn't always called that. But it started to be called that in later centuries, and so those names got updated in the text. Nothing, that's not a problem with inspiration, canonicity, preservation, or any other doctrine that we point to. Anyway, so just be aware of that. So this book of the covenant, the book of the law of Moses, these written forms. All right. As far as the rest of Deuteronomy 31 is concerned, it really, again, it highlights the transfer of power from Moses to Joshua. The Lord requires Joshua's ordination to be a public manner before the assembly of all Israel. There had previously been an ordination with Moses and the priests, but now it's in full public view. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, the time for you to die is near. Call Joshua and present yourselves at the tent of meeting, that I may commission him. So Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves at the tent of meeting. And the Lord appeared in the tent in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood at the doorway of the tent. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will arise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going. And I will forsake me, and they will break my covenant, which I have made with them. Well, thanks for that vote of confidence there, God. Okay, God's just telling them the truth. This is what's going to happen. Anyway, Joshua has to uh, stay strong. So the Lord, you're about to die, they're going to forsake the covenant, then my anger will be kindled against them. Uh, In that day I will forsake them and hide my face from them. They will be consumed. Many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us? No, it's going to be because you rebel, that's why. But I will surely hide my face on that day because of the evil in which they will do. They will turn to other gods. Now therefore... Write this song for yourselves and teach it to the sons of Israel. Now wait a minute, is this the song of Moses or is the Lord giving this song? This is, now I'm starting to wonder if we need to rename this song. So the last two points in your outline there for chapter 31. The Lord requires Joshua's ordination to be a public matter before the assembly of all Israel. That's verses 14, 15, and 23. Also the Lord provides a song for Moses to teach Israel which uh, will highlight his faithfulness despite Israel's unfaithfulness or their faithlessness. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. So uh, the Lord gives Moses these, these lyrics, this song, and uh, teaches them to teach the children. You know, there's some things you learn in song that you don't learn in Bible class. There's a role for music to communicate doctrine. That's why the music should be instructive. It should be uh, filled with scripture. It should be edifying. It's not supposed to be just a feel-good emotional thing. You don't need lyrics for that. 
You can have feel-good emotions with just instruments and instrumentation and, and so forth. Music has a power of itself, but to be honored by the Lord, to be a blessing, it's got to communicate this truth. I stand by that. I will always stand by that. All right. So we see Joshua commissioned, and we see uh, Moses completing the words, putting it in this book of the law, entrusting it to the Levites, warning them that they are stiff-necked and rebellious and stubborn. How much more after my death? These are fun words by Moses. He says, I know your rebellion and your stubbornness. He's been putting up with them for these 40 years now. Um, Behold, while I'm still alive with you today, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more then after my death? Joshua's going to have it worse than me after I'm gone. Assemble to me all the elders of your tribes, your officers, that I may speak these words in their hearing, and call the heaven and earth to witness against them. You know, when all heaven and earth are called to bear witness, that's the moral realm of God's creation. That's humanity and angelity. That's the, uh, the beings that are called to witness. For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn away from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Now, I don't think, you know, we, we can give Moses his credit, give him uh, you know, props for being accurate, but honestly, the Lord said the same thing just a few verses earlier. Okay, so it's not a complicated prophecy to make when Moses simply gets to repeat what the Lord had just finished saying. All right, so this is the end of chapter 31, and that wraps up last hour. Now we're ready for this hour, day 82 in the through the Bible calendar. And really it's chapter 32, but we started a verse early. We started with verse 30 of chapter 31. Then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel the words of this song until they were complete. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the ear, earth hear the words of my mouth. So yeah, I, nobody asked me to, to versify this or chapterify this, but I think that the chapter break is, is exactly one verse off there. I would much rather move the chapter heading in between verses 29 and 30 and make that the first verse of the chapter. But nobody asked me. So this song is calling heaven and earth to bear witness to the truth of God's word. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, as the showers on the herb. Keep in mind, this is necessary. Without life, there's death. Without this water, these these plants aren't going to survive. And that's the nature of the Word of God as it goes forth. That's why we should pant after it. We should thirst after it. We should hunger after the truth of God's Word because we need it. Believers that are not taking in the Word of God are spiritually malnourished and they're starving to death. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. I proclaim the name of the Lord and then ascribe, that's a command, you do this. You do this. The listener of the song, the reader of the scriptures, the the disciple of the word of God. You are being equipped. Now you can ascribe greatness. You can put it in your own words. Give it your own expression. Communicate it yourself. Ascribe greatness to our God. And then Moses proceeds to do just that as he starts to celebrate how awesome God is. He calls him the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. They have acted corruptly towards him. They are not his children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. Remember the days of old. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you. Oh, wait a minute. They're all dead. Okay, For this wilderness generation, their fathers aren't around anymore. They were all killed in the wilderness. So a little tongue in cheek there to ask them and the elders. 
when the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. Not just Israel, all the nations. God is sovereign over every people group, every descendant of Adam in the image of God. God has his dominion. Now Israel is unique because he selected them for himself. He he dwells among them, but he still has a plan for every other people group that's ever been or ever will be. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man. Remember what God has separated? He did this after the flood. He did this with the Babel dispersion and the division of humanity across the face of the earth. He set the boundaries of the peoples. God likes borders. Okay, Russians, your side of the border is called Russia. That other side of the border is called Ukraine because it's the Ukrainians, it's not yours. I'm just saying. All right. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of... And now here's another puzzle. The Masoretic Hebrew is different. And it's a corruption, actually. The Septuagint Greek preserves the original. It's the sons of God. It's not the sons of Israel. It's the sons of God. Because there is an angelic organization to the human nations that God has assigned the human nations and for the sons of God to be the witnesses of those nations. And they have to observe and they have to report and they have to testify to the grace of God and the life of those nations according to the number of the sons of God. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. So all of the B'nai Elohim, all of the sons of God that he assigns these national observances to, they have their duties. And, and the, the angel that's assigned to the United States of America has been on duty since 1776. He's probably pretty close to being finished now, if we're pretty close to being finished as a nation. All right? But then a new nation will be birthed and a new son of God will be assigned to report and observe and oversee. And, uh, but of all the nations of this world, there's one that God has chosen for himself. And God himself watches Israel. Okay? He has a, a lieutenant, that's the Archangel Michael, who goes forth for the military purposes. But God himself is the God of Israel. All right, now there's a whole lot more to this. Let me just pick up. I'm not going to take us through all these other verses, but understand the calling of heaven and earth to bear witness. That's, uh, that's an interesting concept. And you may want to look up in your own time, look through those references in Deuteronomy 4 and uh, Psalm 50 and Isaiah 1. You know, Ephesians 3.10 as the angels are watching us. 1 Peter 1.12 Things into which angels long to look. Isaiah 1.2 Listen, O heavens, and hear, O earth. Psalm 50 He summoned the heavens above and the earth to judge His people. Just the, that dynamic between heaven and earth. This is, this is an object lesson in the angelic conflict. Not only for the human beings involved, but the angels themselves that are watching and reporting. This song is the Lord's song, communicating His word for the blessing of Israel. I understand it's typically the pericope heading is given where it's called the song of Moses. Okay, Technically it's the Lord's song, which He revealed, which Moses put in the, in the canon. It's like the Lord's prayer. That's another mislabel. The song of Moses. This is the Lord's song. Communicating his word of blessing for Israel. Because my ways are not your ways, neither your thoughts of my thoughts, says the Lord. That's Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth and will not return to me void without accomplishing what I desire. So God is sending this forth. Man's response to God's revealed word should be one of praise and worship. The fact that God is dealing with us as with sons. The fact that God is revealing His Word to us. What a privilege. What a privilege that God is doing this. And that we have the blessing to receive it. The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children forever. And that God is giving us a written canon. God is revealing His mind to us. We are accountable. We should respond with praise and worship. We should respond with adoration. We should be ascribing to Him Proclaim His name and ascribe greatness to our God. Ascribing greatness. Now God is great whether we ascribe it or not. (laughs) He is infinitely awesome even if we don't say so. 
but it is our privilege to say so. It is our privilege to describe it in such a way. Let me find a better way to describe how great my God is. And if I can find a better way than that, next time I'll do it better the next time. If I can find a better time the time after that, I'm going to do it as best as I can every time, always trying to improve how great my God is. Because I want you to know how great my God is. This by definition is the doctrine of glorification. I am glorifying my God the more that I communicate how great He is. Of course, He's infinitely great. I can never surpass that. But each time I try, I'm going to convince you how great God is. And you do the same thing. When you convince your family, your loved ones, uh, your enemies, whoever, when you're communicating the greatness of God, you are ascribing greatness to Him. And this is what we're called to do. Not the faithless response of a crooked and perverse generation, okay? God is so great and we're so crooked. Is this how we repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is He not your Father who has bought you, as He uh, has made you and established you? Is this how you pay Him back? And we can never pay Him back, but we should live our lives in such a way that it honors the work that He's done on our behalf. The work of God in setting apart Israel was a sovereign work of divine grace. And we have this term of Jeshurun. We have this term of Jeshurun. Let me get past, we got to verse 8 and I got sidetracked by the text issue there on the angels. Let's see some more here. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the howling waste of a wilderness he encircled him and cared for him. He guarded him as a pupil of his eye. Now he found them in the wilderness because he had redeemed them out of Egypt and then their parents had rebelled at Kadesh Barnea. And so he pronounces death to that generation and starts over with the next generation. In a sense he found them in a desert land in the howling waste of a wilderness. So he cares for them. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that hovers over its young, he spread his wings and caught them and carried them on his pinions. The Lord alone guided them. There was no foreign god with him. He didn't need any help. Baal didn't help him. The Egyptian gods didn't help him. This is God and God alone that's saving his people. He made him ride on the high places of the earth. He ate the produce of the field, made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock curds of cows and milk of the flock with fat of lambs, with rams, the breed of Bashan and goats with the finest of wheat and the blood of grapes you drank wine. Now some of this is anticipatory. None of this has really happened yet in the life of Moses, but he's singing as if it's completed already. He's singing as if God has rescued his people from the wilderness and put them in the the land flowing with milk and honey as a completed act, as if it's a done deal. Celebrating how awesome God was for doing that. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. Now Jeshurun, what's the footnote say there? I.e. Israel. Okay, thanks. Uh, Jeshurun, this is a name. Anytime you encounter this, this speaks to Israel in prosperity. This speaks to um, fat, dumb, and happy. Okay? This speaks to a nation that is so blessed by the Lord, they're just overwhelmed by God's goodness. And sadly, every time Israel is referred to as Jeshurun, you want to know what happens next? They fail. Israel blows it. They're they're so prosperous, they're so wealthy, they're so blessed, they're so provided for, they fail the prosperity test. And invariably, Jeshurun is in for judgment. Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You were grown fat, slick, thick and sleek. Then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons who were not God. Keep in mind, when you leave the true God, who are you worshiping? You're falling away from the faith and paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. These posers, or what does God call them? Gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, right? Like the Johnny come lately, where where did that phrase come from, right? But these new gods who came along lately, these new kids on the block, they're not gods, they're not real gods. If they were really God, they would have been the I am from all eternity. And clearly only the I am from all eternity is the I am from all eternity. 
Everybody else had a finite beginning. All these demon posers. New gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. And so there's provocation here. Jeshurun failed the prosperity test. Jeshurun reaped the divine consequences for their spiritual adultery. They are faithless. And uh, they're going to have to reap those consequences. That goes all the way from verse 19 down to verse 27. The Lord saw this and spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and daughters. And, and again, this is, this is phrased as if it's completed, as if it's in the past tense. It's actually a prophecy written ahead of time, put to music and sung. They were supposed to sing this and learn the lessons. The provocation of his sons and daughters. Then he said, I will hide my face from them and will see what their end shall be. For they are a perverse generation, sons in whom is no faithfulness. They have made me jealous with what is not God and have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. And it's curious, how many times does that get fulfilled both in the Old Testament but now today in the church? Today the bride of Christ provokes Israel to jealousy. The bride of Christ provokes Israel waking them up to their status as having their stewardship suspended. But even before the church, every captivity, every dispersion, every judgment, all the cycles we'll see repeated again and again in the book of Judges. He, uh, they provoke him and he provokes them. For a fire is kindled in my anger and burns to the lowest part of Sheol and consumes the earth with its yield and sets the fire of the foundation on the mountains. I will heap misfortune upon them I will use my arrows on them. They will be wasted by famine and consumed by plague and bitter destruction. And the teeth of beasts I will send upon them with a venom of crawling things of the dust. Outside the sword will bereave and inside terror. So there's nowhere you can hide. You want to go outside, it's there. You want to go inside, it's there. Both young man and virgin, the nursling with the man and the man of gray hair. In other words, the youngest among you, the oldest among you, and every age in between. I would have said, I will cut them to pieces. I will remove the memory of them from men had I not feared the provocation by the enemy that their adversaries would misjudge, that they would say our, hands is, our hand is triumphant and the Lord has not done this. Isn't that curious? Even when God disciplines His people, He keeps the Gentile nations from boasting in what they're doing. So the Lord laments that Israel is not living up to everything that they could have been living up to. When he thinks about what they were designed to be, a redeemed people with a perfect law, with a perfect design, and he conquers the land before them, he brings them into the land. I mean, everything was set for this to be an ideal kingdom. And it's not. Okay, they're going to fail. So the Lord has his own lamentation that Israel is not living up to everything that they could be living up to. And, and this is not the only place either. Not just here in Deuteronomy, but also Psalm 81, Isaiah 48, Matthew 23, Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, and how often I wanted to gather you, uh, your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. You know, Jesus was lamenting that Israel was not what they were supposed to be, not what they could have been, not what God wanted them to be. Again, Luke thirteen thirty four, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. So time and time again, this was the Lord's lament. He's shepherding his earthly people and time and time again, they're not following his divine guidance. And so what does the Lord do? Let's look at his lamentation and look at his anticipation. He laments in verses 28 through 35. They are a nation lacking in counsel. There is no understanding in them. Would that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would discern their future. How could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? 
What a potential, and it's lost. Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. For their vine is from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are the grapes of poison, their clusters bitter. Their wine is in the venom of serpents and the deadly poison of the cobras. Is it not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and retribution. In due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. So we have the Lord's lament, but then we have the Lord's promised restoration. Eventually those treasuries are going to be open. He's going to start working on their behalf. For the Lord will vindicate his people and he will have compassion on his servants when he sees that their strength is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. And he will say, where are their gods, the rock in which they have sought refuge? You know, the apostasy of Israel gets to the point they even sign a bargain with the devil. They sign a covenant with Antichrist. They are so hostile to anything of the Lord. And it's not until they're in that the, the edge of their own destruction that they finally, the light bulb comes on and the repentance is given and, and they realize the evil of what they've been doing. We ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you. Let them be your hiding place. As long as they keep serving idols, the Lord says, all right then, they can rescue you. But not until when they finally abandon every last vestige of idolatry when they look upon him whom they crucified and they call upon him as their savior, then Yahweh will return and, and, and Jesus can come back to the earth and their millennium is prepared to be unveiled. See now that I, I am he. There is no God beside me. It is I who put to death and give life. I have wounded, it is I who heal. There is no one who can deliver from my hand. Indeed, I lift up my hand to heaven and say, as I live forever, the God who cannot lie, and he takes an oath, as I live. The God who cannot lie takes an oath, and the God who cannot die stakes his life on this oath, as I live forever. If I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on vengeance, I will render vengeance on my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood, and my sword will devour flesh. With the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired leaders of the enemy, rejoice, O nation, with his people, for he, nations, plural, I'm sorry, rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance on his adversaries and will atone for his land and his people. Oh, Maranatha, even so come Lord Jesus. Today would be good. I can clear my calendar right now, Lord, if you want to come wreak vengeance upon the evil of this world. So the Lord promises a time when Israel will enjoy his deliverance for all eternity. And when he accomplishes this, when he brings them under the bond of the covenant, when he brings them into the kingdom, never again will Israel be the faithless nation. They will never again will they be faithless in their obedience to him. So Moses urges Joshua and all Israel to pay attention to the Lord's teaching through this psalm, to live it in their daily life. And you have that in verses 44 through 47. He and Joshua come forth and they urge Israel to take to your heart all the words which I'm warning you today. I imagine a lot of this won't make a lot of sense to them before the conquest. A lot of this they're going to keep coming back to again and again and again after they're living in their land. It's only with the hindsight of living in the land that much of this song is going to start making sense to them. Because Yahweh is singing it as if it's a completed action. Looking from the, the, the Armageddon back to uh, all of Israel's history. Almost like, by the way, this, you know what this reminds me of? Moses gives this song as he's prepared to depart and their heads are just spinning and they're clueless and, and, and later on they'll start to put some of these pieces together. This reminds me of Jesus in, in the upper room on the night in which he's betrayed. And he's giving a long discourse and the disciples are clueless. Their heads are spinning. They're just one question after another and they're totally confused. But he says, after I'm gone, the Holy Spirit will come and he will lead you into all this truth. And it's really only in the church age that the believers are equipped to comprehend the upper room discourse of John 13 through 17. Same thing here, I think. The song of Moses, it's only with a hindsight. And it may be that it won't even be fully digested and appreciated by Israel until the tribulation. 
the coming tribulation when then the 144,000 and any other born-again Jews in the tribulation can look to this chapter and process every promise that's in here knowing that the hour of the redemption is drawing nigh. Finally, as the conclusion to this psalm, the Lord directed Moses to ascend Mount Nebo. It's called Pisgah in other passages. Uh, He's going to walk up the mountain for the last time. You know, Moses walked up a lot of mountains. Okay? And it seems like every time we're turning around, there goes Moses up to another mountain again. And he stayed there 40 days and 40 nights. Had to do that twice to get two sets of tablets. Um, But this is a mountain that he's going up only one more time. His final walk up the mountain because he's not coming back down again. So go up to this mountain of the Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab opposite Jericho, and look at the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel for a possession. Then die on the mountain where you ascend. Isn't that marvelous? He tells Moses to die. He doesn't say kill yourself, he just says die. And I think this is an authority This is an authority, and he gave this to Jesus. Jesus had authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. He gives Moses the authority to lay down his life. Get to the top of the mountain and then die. Moses has the sovereign, the permissive will of God to breathe his last, you know, almost like, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit, and to to surrender his final breath. None of us get that privilege. I'm convinced only Moses and Jesus were ever given that privilege and Jesus was told to to lay it down and take it back up again. Moses laid it down and God buried him. So then die on the mountain where you ascend and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh in the wilderness of Zin because you do not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. He was commanded to speak to the rock. Instead, he struck the rock and he called Israel a bunch of rebels. For you shall see the land at a distance, but you shall not go there into the land which I am giving the sons of Israel. And so that's the end of that. All right, so the last thing we need to cover today is Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is the earliest psalm we know about, the earliest psalm that we have authorship for. There are many anonymous psalms that we're not entirely clear on the authorship or the origin. But fully half of the psalms are David's that we have inscriptions that tell us in the Hebrew manuscripts that was written by David. And then that's 75 out of the 150. And then for the other ones, we have several that are attributed to the sons of Korah, several that are attributed to Heman and Asaph and uh, to Solomon. We have some other ascriptions of, of many of the psalms, but the bulk of them are anonymous. A lot of them are. This is the one that specifically is attributed to Moses. And keep in mind, this is um, the, the organization of the Psalms into five books was done after the lifetime of David, after the lifetime of Solomon, probably by Ezra after the captivity when they came back when much of their scriptures were being canonized. So Ezra took the uh, 150 Psalms and he put them in the order they're in today. And so we've had that ever since. The, uh, the numbering is not always the same between the Hebrew, the Septuagint, and the English Bibles. This is a New American Standard publishing blurb written by the Lockman Foundation, the uh, publishers of the New American Standard Bible. But this is in the Hebrew. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. And, and it's a little bit confusing because it's, it's not versified. It's kind of separated. It's kind of kept as a, as a paragraph heading. But it is a part of the Hebrew. See, there's a Tehillah, a prayer, Lamoshe, of Moses. Okay? The Ish Ha Elohim, the man of God. So that's a prescript that actually belongs in the canon. It's part of the Hebrew manuscript. So you can see it there. All right. 
Psalm 90 is the one psalm of Moses in the book of Psalms, although some traditions also assign Psalm 91 to Moses. Those are some of the Hebrew legends that would kind of combine Psalm 90 with Psalm 91 as a single psalm. That's not, doesn't have solid manuscript grounds and it's not as solid to me as some other ones. I think Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 are much more likely to be originally one psalm than Psalm 90 and 91, but be that as it may. That's what causes a lot of the numbering to be off when the Hebrew manuscripts lump 9 and 10 together and the other uh, Septuagint and other manuscripts keep them separated. Then we're, we're off by a number every time. All right. In addition to this psalm, Moses also authored um, a psalm that we just read in Psalm 32. Also a song-like blessing at his death. We'll see that Tuesday night with... Uh, Deuteronomy 33. The blessing at his death when he pronounces blessings on the 12 tribes is very song-like. And um, you can imagine having that set to music, but you can certainly see the poetry of it as you read it through. This beautiful psalm highlights God's eternal life. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 here. Yeah. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, we can't stop and break this down. We want to. You want to. You see my purple notes on that, that were made months and months ago, even years ago, um, because this is birthing language like we have in Proverbs 8, where Yahweh is birthing the humanity of Jesus Christ. We have other birthing language as it applies to the the heavens and the earth here. But regardless, we'll let that go for today. We have a created universe, but God was here first. Obviously, He created it. God will be here after this universe is gone. Obviously, because He's making a new one to replace this one. So before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man back into dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. This is the original basis for the New Testament quotation that with the Lord a day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as is in a day. And that gets a lot of mileage when it's used in the New Testament. However, that's only a part of the story. Because the actual psalm that addresses this actually compresses it into more than just a day. Compressing it into a three-hour watch in the night. So a thousand years is more than just a day. It could even be limited to to one-eighth of a day. It could be limited to a watch in the night as the equivalent of a thousand years. That makes each day as 8,000 years. Now what are we going to do? You have swept them away like a flood. They fall asleep. In the morning they are like the grass which sprouts anew. In the morning it flourishes and sprouts anew. Toward evening it fades and withers away. So human beings and other occupants of this planet, we're very much uh, finite. We're very much, we're here one day, gone the next. And even within each particular passing day as they come and go, uh, we tend to be, um, we tend to be, uh, slaves to the cycle, if, if you will. We tend to be uh, caught up in the mornings and the evenings. And uh, as if, you know, these, these transitory things like morning and evening or anything in God's sight. So this beautiful psalm highlights God's eternal life. This beautiful psalm highlights God's eternal purpose and his unique timetable. God accomplishes what he accomplishes, and he's definitely thinking the long game. How can any of us think in his terms? We're just here one day and gone the next. But from generation to generation, right? God is working out his plan and Jesus right now is working out his plan for the church. And this day and age, today, our place right now in the body of Christ is Jesus Christ showing himself faithful like he did in the first century with the apostles, like he did in the early church with writing the canon, like he's done with every passing generation, okay? including the reformers, including the, uh, the founding of America, including every generation. I think the, um, when we get to the judgment seat, we're going to see that, that Baraka Church and Colonel R.B. Theme had a, a profound impact upon this world. 
with the, uh, the, the teaching of the Word of God and the format that he pioneered in, in a very powerful way that we still uh, are edified with here to this day. We're going to see generations and generations. And, then, and we don't know. We don't have the capacity to know. We can't possibly know. It's only with hindsight that you can look back and say, I don't think the Reformers knew what they were doing. Not like we know what they were doing. If Luther or Calvin or any of those guys had half a clue of what we know now, I think they would have run for the hills and been intimidated as anything. But in their day, they just walked by faith, took it a day at a time, trusted in the Lord, and God did amazing things with with the Protestant Reformation. Same thing with us today. Do we know what's going to happen with us through the Bible series when it's done? We don't have a clue. We just know we're in the midst right now of something pretty special for this current year. And we're thankful for it, we're redeeming it, we're, we're rejoicing in it. But all the things God's going to do with it next year and 10 years from now and 100 years from now, you know, rapture pending. Or even if the rapture does occur, what benefit does this series become to the tribulational saints when they no longer have living pastors and churches and places to go to? When they're living in hiding and whatnot? We don't know. We can, we can wonder and speculate, but God knows. So God's eternal purpose in His unique timetable. Verses 7 through 12. This beautiful psalm highlights the short uh, time that man has upon the earth and the importance of staying faithful to the Lord. Verses 7 through 12. For we have been consumed by your anger, and by your wrath we have been dismayed. You have placed our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days have declined in your fury. We have finished our years like a sigh. As for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or, if due to strength, 80 years. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone, and we fly away. Who understands the power of your anger and your fury according to the fear that is due you? So teach us to number our days, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom." And I'll tell you, the application for this, it should be evident for each one of us, living our lives one day at a time and moment by moment in the, in the fear of the Lord. And some of this, I was talking to Robbie Dean about this the other day. And I'm not going to say how old he is <laughs> or how old he will be at his next birthday. But he's definitely feeling it. And the... Um, the promises of God and the blessings that we have and, and uh, the, the desire he, he, you know, we, these guys like Ralph and, and these older men, John Eichmann, these, these older men um, that, are, that are still with us in their 80s and 90s, how much longer are we going to have them with us? All these things we want to we claim and redeem. All right, so yes. And if there's stuff we think we're getting re- uh, away with, we're not getting away with anything. God sees it all, and he's, he's gracious enough to expose it as he rebukes us for it so that we can repent and get on with the real uh, business of obeying him in our, in our ministry. Finally, verses 13 through 17. This beautiful psalm highlights a sinful people repentant of their evil and looking to the loving kindness of the Lord. And really, that's all of us. Okay? It was Israel in Moses' day. It was Israel throughout the whole Old Testament. But it's a timeless psalm that applies to all of us today. Any one of us can testify, Lord, I am a... I'm, what did, I think it's a... Is it a, a C.S. Lewis quote or a Charles Spurgeon quote? That I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. John Newton. John Newton. There you go. Amazing grace. Yeah. John Newton quote. I'm a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. And yes, we are a sinful people. And, and let's not lose sight of that. Yes, we're sinners saved by grace, but the first word there is sinners. <laughs> okay? Sinners saved by grace. And so we all stumble in many portions, many ways. We just, by God's grace, every time, confess, get back in fellowship, keep short accounts. Do return, O Lord, how long will it be? And be sorry for your servants. O satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. If it's not today, maybe I'll wake up tomorrow in your glory. 
Okay? The trumpet didn't come last night. It was an alarm clock this morning instead of a trumpet. That was a disappointment. But okay, it's another day. Stay faithful. Maybe tomorrow. Satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days you have afflicted us and the years we have seen evil. You know, even the discipline of God. Thank God for that. Thankful for years of blessing. Thank you for years of discipline because that means God loves us and, and is bringing us to repentance. Let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children so that in the next generation they can build upon, what, by God's grace, what we did. You know, by God's grace, what did Pastor Theme do? And then by God's grace, how did Ralph Braun and, and uh, Glenn Carnegie and Emil Schmidt and all these other faithful men, how did they build on that work? And then after Theme's generation, after Ralph's generation, now what are we doing in our generation? By God's grace, we're building on what they've done. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. We're building on what they've done. And... Because God's a God of grace, in spite of all our failures, the generation could come after we're done and build on what we've done and take it places we wouldn't even dream of or imagine. So let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us. There's your Hanan, there's your grace. Is it, is it Hanan? I've got to double check that. All right. And confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. Not only is that going to happen here on earth in terms of whatever legacy our children build on, but ultimately it's going to happen at the judgment seat of Christ because we're going to see the work of our hands. We're going to see laid up as gold, silver, and precious stones or wood, hay, stubble as the case may be. And the fire is going to hit it and either consume it or preserve it. And we'll have the blessing there. All right. I do not attach Psalm 91 to Psalm 90, but dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. There's, there's, a, there's a marvelous truth there. We'll handle that separately. Also, Ron Rhodes handles that separately. He puts that much later in the, uh, in the chronological record. Okay, so that gets us through Psalm 90 and Deuteronomy 32. We have one more class in Deuteronomy because I know none of us are going to be happy to see it gone. We're going to miss Deuteronomy when it's over. So one more class in Deuteronomy. That's day 24. We'll come back to that. It'll be Tuesday night when we come back here. And uh, we'll handle day 83 with Deuteronomy 33 and 34. Then Wednesday night for day uh, 84... Wednesday night is a, is, we're not going to be covering chapters, we're not going to be going through, but we are going to be giving an introduction showing you this next section of scripture. Um, when, when we talk about places of the Bible where we're, we're not comfortable, okay? I think the Pentateuch, we know better than Joshua Judges Ruth, okay? I think, uh, we know, um, the kingdom. We know Saul and David and Solomon. We know that era very well because it's, Saul and David and Solomon, it's stories, it's David fighting Goliath, it's, it's adventure and swashbuckling and Bathsheba, and, you know, we know that portion of our Bible very well, plus the Psalms and the Proverbs that go with that portion of the Bible. Once we get past Solomon, though, I think we're, we struggle again. We get to that divided kingdom, we got kings to the north and kings to the south, and we end up with, uh, it's not as, it's not as maybe, uh, it's not as familiar to us. And then the captivity and the post-captivity. Those are the realms of, of the Old Testament. I'm glad we're taking them as we're taking them. So by the time, and I think it's useful, I love these interludes. I love these era introductions when, uh, when we have them. Rhodes does an excellent job, and, and I'll reference that a little bit Wednesday night. But then I wrote my own introduction to this, like I did with era one and era two. And we're going to go through that on Wednesday night as well. Cause, cause this is what's going to help us to, to meditate through the scriptures from creation to the patriarchs to the, uh, to the conquest to the kingdom, the divided kingdom, the captivity. All, we can, we can think our way through the Old Testament and, and, and then, then it just comes together. It starts to click and we start to see the whole counsel of the word of God in a framework that, uh, we've never seen before. So stay tuned for that. So Thursday night we'll start with Joshua and then uh, all the week after that we'll have uh, Joshua.
Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for the example of Moses. And um, Father, uh, for as, as mighty as he was and the privileges that he had and the service that he rendered, nevertheless, he died, uh, we could say, the sin unto death. He died uh, under discipline. He died not permitted to see the land. And uh, how much longer could he have lived? How much more fruit could he have borne? Only you know. But that time was cut short because of his rebellion. And I pray that all of us be mindful of uh, of our service to you. Let's not count uh, uh, any slack because we, we are who we are. The accountability is so much more. To whom much is given shall much be required. So Father, we uh, were humbled by this and we thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.